is Bean to Barstool, a podcast that looks at the intersections of craft beer and craft chocolate. My name is David Nelson. I'm a professional beer writer and an advanced Cicerone and the creator and host of this show. The music for this episode is by my dear friend, indie folk musician Anna P.S. You can find out more about Anna's music in the show notes or at her website, annapsmusic.com. You can find links and information about our guests in the show notes as well. I hope you enjoy this episode of Bean to Barstool. In this episode, we talk with Sarah Barath, a former academic who now works with cacao farmers in Trinidad and Tobago on behalf of Meridian Cacao assisting them in improving their farming and post-harvest processes in hopes of increasing the amount of fine flavor cacao Meridian is then able to purchase from them and pass along to craft chocolate makers. We also talk with Chris Heyer, head brewer at Half Hitch Brewing in Cochrane, Alberta, Canada. Chris is one-fourth Trinidadian and has brewed a beer and made his own chocolate with Meridian's Trinidadian cacao from Jagasar Estate. I hope you enjoy this episode of Bean to Barstool. In early 2021, I participated in a virtual tasting put on by the Cocoa Research Center in Trinidad and Tobago to showcase the diversity of cacao flavor from these islands. It was an illuminating tasting and presentation, and I came away from it with one more pin on the map of places I want to visit someday. Last winter, I got an email from a brewer in Canada who had brewed a seasonal beer with cacao and then made chocolate bars from the same beans. When this winter rolled around, he did it again, this time using Trinidadian beans through Meridian Cacao. Chris Heyer of Half Hitch Brewing in Cochrane, Alberta, Canada, not far from Calgary, has family in Tobago, and his goal was always to work with cacao from Trinidad and Tobago. We spoke recently about this project, and Chris then put me in touch with Sarah Barath, an agronomist working with cacao farmers in Trinidad on behalf of Meridian. My conversation with Sarah was fascinating. Sarah is brilliant and passionate, and there were so many spots in our conversation about the cacao industry in Trinidad where we both wanted to pursue rabbit trails but didn't have time. Because of that, we'll be having another conversation soon to explore more of the world of cacao and chocolate. I'll share that with you in a few months. We're going to start today by hearing from Sarah as she gives what will feel to many of us like a deep dive into Trinidadian cacao, but what is really just scratching the surface of what there is to explore with the topic. Listen in as Sarah immerses us in cacao farming on these Caribbean islands, and then we'll hear from Chris on how he has used this cacao in a very different climate before one more session with Sarah to discuss the full circle of Trinidadian cacao and chocolate. Sarah, tell us a little bit about the state of the cacao industry in Trinidad and Tobago. Maybe give us a little bit of background and tell us where that is at today. Well, David, (laughs) for me, that's such a loaded question now, um, given everything that's happening in the industry. There's a lot of activity, plus and minus, okay? And I'll get into that. But essentially, Trinidad, from, you know, all of the history that is that is recorded, um, Trinidad has a very, very lengthy history with cacao, right? more than 200 years. Allegedly, the Spanish, you know, got things going here when they they came to Trinidad and they brought cacao to Trinidad. But I'm actually waiting for some sort of uh, archaeological evidence to say otherwise. (laughs) Because honestly, we were were at one point, minus sea level rise, we were very much um, connected to the South American mainland. 
by a land bridge. And so we have had a lot of movement in the, you know, not so recent history of people. And we know that even to date, when people move, they move with their seeds, their plants, things of value. And cacao was very much of value long before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's, it, it's, it stands to reason that they likely came here with material, um, seeing that we're so close to Venezuela. But to date, we've not yet uncovered the archaeological evidence to support that and upend part of the literature, right? Mm -hmm. But work in progress. <laughs> um, but that said, um, Trinidad in its, in its heyday <laughs> was once a very, very large producer, primarily because the West African production was not yet on the radar. Yes, we have the, you know, the legacy, the long-standing legacy of being the quote-unquote origin of the Trinitario cacao group. It's not a genetically defined group, okay? That's something that, that has caused a lot of confusion in the space. But for those of us who work in the domain, we know that cacao, um, when it comes to the groupings of Forastero, Trinitario, Criollo, they're things that very, they're very anchored in the chocolate and cacao space, right? So it's going to take a while to get them removed, no matter what the geneticists say, okay? <laughs> but Trinidad became very, very well known because of the Trinitario cacao groups that basically represent pretty much the, the best combination of, you know, the parents, the dark purple bean varieties, which tend to be your foresteros with your, the remnant white bean varieties that were planted here. From the literature, it says that the, you know, the, the Spanish brought over the white bean varieties that were um, cultivated here. And those were severely compromised in like the early 1700s. And the Spanish returned to the mainland, brought in new and hardier varieties that then allegedly, you know, naturally hybridized with the remnant Criollo populations here, leading to Trinitario. Now, interestingly enough, Trinitario was not named Trinitario in Trinidad. It was when the material was taken from Trinidad back to the South American domain, it was known as Trinitario because it came from Trinidad, right? Sure. So it, it's always interesting to have those little things unpacked and, and really give credit where it was due, you know, for naming things and all that good stuff. In Trinidad's history, it's, uh, as far as I can tell, based on literature, you know, it's been, it's been quite the uh, roller coaster scenario for decades, right? <laughs> Even when cacao was so-called, you know, king or queen, depending on your inclinations, right? <laughs> it was always pretty much you know some boom bust cycles you know with the market and production etc but we did have a time when quite a significant portion of Trinidad was covered in cacao it really is staggering to see the maps and understand or at least begin to appreciate what the, the coverage was like here but with the advent of the oil and gas industry <laughs> Things took a turn for the worse because obviously, you know, that that industry was definitely far more well-paying and it attracted the labor accordingly. And there was a lot of movement out of the agricultural sector. So cacao and a number of other things suffered, right? Fast forward to today, Trinidad has been very determined and continues to be very determined to build on the legacy that existed, okay? Granted, we have much smaller acreages under cultivation, much of it is largely abandoned or has been converted into something else. And that something else could be other farming activities. It could also be things have been leveled for development, building spaces, living spaces, etc. So our cultivation, I don't even like to look at the numbers. <laughs> so I'm not going to quote you any numbers. I just know we've really plummeted, but everything is contextual, right? If you've lost most of your labor force, 
Okay, and granted, the labor force that existed in the so-called heyday is not one we'd want to repeat now because Coco's colonial past is not some, it's not a pretty picture. We still have vestiges of a lot of that time in the space, but that's probably for a whole other conversation on the social dynamics and, you know, uh, just mindsets, etc. Okay. Um, but from the point of view of production of the crop, we have, we're in a situation where production has dropped dramatically. I don't have the stats for last year, but I know in, in the last few years, we've probably not crossed 500 tons for a country that produced likely tens of thousands of tons, you know, in, in the past, right? Again, context, mm-hmm. shrinking acreages, aging labor force. It's a classic story wherever cocoa is produced. Yes. Succession planning, almost impossible. Very, very few families would have a situation where, you know, the other family members, um, not only, let's say, the next generation would be willing to take it forward, right? Just a, a willing labor force, external labor. It's, it's been problematic, and it's something that, and this is my personal opinion, the higher-ups don't seem to want to touch, yes? I don't know what the socio-political economic implications would be of engaging certain kinds of labor, but the, it remains a, a very, very hot and frustrating topic in this space because most farmers would love to take um, their cacao estates, whatever is left, take it forward and in a very sustainable way. But they just can't. They don't have the labor. They themselves cannot manage the acreages that they have. Productivity is low for a number of reasons. Some may want to blame, you know, varietal issues, okay, but when it comes to productivity in any growing system, it's never a single bullet. As, a, as an agroecologist in the space, I'm the first to say, nope, we can't just take one look at this. There are a number of factors weighing in. And so this current scenario that we're in where disease is rampant, we really have been seeing the impact of macro and microclimatic changes here. Small island developing states are usually among the most vulnerable because we're so small, the changes, they may be small, but the, the impacts would be big, right? Sure. So we've had growing scenarios of we're having cooler weather than we're used to. We're having more intense weather events. So last year, I believe, or if not the year before, because COVID really put a blip in, in, in how we perceive time, right? Yeah. <laughs> or at least me. Yeah, um, but we, on record, we've, we've had the wettest dry season like ever. And I think that was last year. This year is probably, you know, up for a strong contention <laughs> to be the one to overtake that, right? Um, so the, definitely the impacts of climate change, they're here. And what we're noticing, even though we're a small island, the changes are so very location specific. Trinidad is, okay, tiny. <laughs> and you can have thundering rainfall in one location and barely five kilometers away. It's blistering beach weather. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have massive swings in temperature. The, the diurnal variation is really dramatic. Okay. As I mentioned before, likely before we started recording, we've been having much, much cooler temperatures than we're used to at certain times of the year. The plants, signaling in plants, it's just off the chain. The harvest periods, they've been shifted, not just with cacao, just all plant systems, right? You're seeing the, the difference. And this, of course, has important implications for disease, for insects and other animals. I'm not going to say pests because I don't believe in pests. (laughs) I believe in system indicators, right? 
when there's this equilibrium, things step in to do what needs to be done. Yes. And so they're huge signposts. Um, granted, they're huge signposts that nobody really wants to see, especially when your varietals, you feel they're not performing at their best. And then you have the proverbial axe put to the tree by these quote unquote pests, right? And diseases. So we're, we're pretty much, I can't even say in the middle of a perfect storm, it might be just the beginning. I mean, I don't want to be the doomsday prior here, but we need to face reality and then begin to look at the solutions in the space for what we currently have to deal with, right? So as it stands, production is severely down thanks to the, the, you know, the, the, the increasing weight of fungal diseases, especially in the space. Many, many farmers are also experiencing crippling situations with animal attack in terms of, so for example, parrots. Parrots are a very big problem in some cocoa farms in Trinidad. It used to be confined to one area of the country for a while, but now it's very widespread. And it's very telling because a lot of their natural habitat continues to be encroached upon, continues to be destroyed. And as I mentioned before, when you have plants signaling all over the map and fruiting cycles are dis disrupted, it means these animals are likely going without food at times when they would have least expected it, yes? So what's what's actually in season? Cacao. And in the past, they would have fed on ripe material. They would have attacked ripe pods. Now they're actually attacking green, immature material. That says a lot. That carries way less sugar, immediate, you know, sustenance. But it's what they're going after because it's available, you know. And when I look at what's happening on farms and you look at what's happening around those farms, you're seeing that the environmental degradation is having a serious impact on, on the wider cacao, you know, companion ecosystem. Yeah. So that in a nutshell, from my lens as an, uh, you know, as, a, as an agroecologist in this space, that's the state of the cocoa industry in Trinidad right now from the plant side of things. If we were to look at what's happening on the industry side of things, Trinidad, like many other locations, especially in the region, in the last few years, they've really, thanks to craft chocolate and, you know, what's become available with the advent of the craft chocolate revolution, availability of, you know, small scale equipment, small to medium scale equipment, availability of training, you know, just the knowledge, the knowledge has just exploded in the space. So whereas in the past, it was not made available to us on the islands that were producers, that are producers. Now it's open season, you know, and that is really refreshing to see because now it's opened up possibilities for so many, especially farmers who never worked with their materials so intimately, you know, to be able to have a, a, a product that they would consume beyond, let's say, the traditional um, grating cacao to have as a hot beverage, right? Mm. So we've seen considerable explosion in the craft chocolate space. Lots of people getting into value addition, right? Not just chocolate and chocolate bars, um, but really, you know, looking at the spectrum of things that they can do using this fruit. So everything from the juices to jams and jellies to, I haven't seen anybody locally doing the yogurts yet. I wish, maybe I need to get on it. Um, but, you know, stepping out of the chocolate bar scenario, we started off with lots of chocolates in the space. It became very saturated very fast. That has not stopped many from still entering because it seems that once people get trained, they, I guess it's a gateway drug. <laughs> so they get hooked. And then everybody wants to get into cacao. But which end do they want to get into cacao? On the transformation end. 
I, I very, very rarely have people who come to me saying, oh my God, I did this amazing chocolate course and now I really want to plant my own cacao. Uh, crickets, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and that's something that needs to be addressed because if you don't have the raw material, what are you going to do? You know, and this is something that plagues the wider industry as well. You know, lots of people focusing on the transformation. And I, I can understand to a point the reasoning that, well, with the transformation and the, you know, the, 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 I guess, exploration and expansion of markets in that regard, it'll create that pull mechanism from the production level, right? To a point, yes, but a lot more focus needs to be given to what is really happening at the producer level because it's not a happy one for a number of reasons. It's not a happy one. So there we are. That's my little window. (laughs) There's a lot there to break down. Do you feel like there are things from a sensory standpoint that make cacao from Trinidad and Tobago distinct or is there too much variation to be able to narrow that down? Well, that's a really good question. When you, and I'd like you to clarify what you mean by flavor distinct. Are you thinking of one flavor profile? Because then it'll let me know if I need to dispel a couple myths, you know, for even the audience. Do you feel like when it comes to making chocolate or chocolate products, there are things that are recognizably Trinidad and Tobago? Yes. Okay. Definitely so. And you would see it in the the published, uh, you know, literature references. I don't mean scientific journals necessarily, right? You will see it there. But um, Trinidad is very, very known for its fruity and very whiny wine type flavors in the, in, in the beans, right? Now, Everything, and you, you, yeah, you will hear me say this a lot. <laughs> Everything is contextual, right? Because when Trinidad, as a producer, years ago, let's, let, let's use before craft chocolate and then after craft chocolate, right? As the, as the, the meridian line there. <laughs> before, Trinidad was largely an exporter, okay? And the bulk of what was leaving Trinidad was a bulk blend, right? And I use bulk and inverted. Um, these terms are so messy, <laughs> Because you can have bulk, you have fine or flavor cacao, but Trinidad is classed as a fine, fine or flavor specialty cacao origin, right? Based on the varietals and a number of other things in, in you know, the, the criterion list that, that's usually generated for this kind of um, assignment. But when I refer to bulk, I'm referring to it's not been segmented based on farms, right? In the past, in addition to the bulk Trinidad blend that left the country, we would have had certain legacy estates, i.e. estates that came out of the plantation period, that still their owners were still um, actively, you know, farming the cacao and basically selling their beans as single estate beans, right? So I think the first time, if I'm not mistaken, the first time that this was actually showcased for Trinidad was with the San Juan estate through the, the chocolate company Valrona. They did the very first single estate San Juan estate bar, right? Mm-hmm. And that started slowly but surely a few things rolling. And it was when Isabel Brash of Coco Bell Chocolate here in Trinidad, she really was the one who went out on a limb and essentially got craft chocolate going here in Trinidad with the work that she was doing um, using beans from her family's estate, right? Another single estate origin. So we had we had singular examples. But no one was thinking along the lines of dialing into what else is coming from this country, right? Maybe there was the general belief at the time, uh, because perhaps the science was not yet teasing that out into the space. It was all still very exploratory. And that actually just gave me a good idea. I think 
we need to look at some timelines, some parallel timelines there with the science, the social stuff, you know, the evolution yeah. of the, the craft chocolate market. It might, it might actually show some very interesting overlap. Thanks, David. <laughs> Future conversation for us. Yeah, I love it. Love it. Love it. So anyway, point is very singular representations of certain farms. Okay. It was when I, wow. Yeah, it was, it was, I think it was just playing divine intervention that I crossed paths with uh, Gino Dalla Gasparina of Meridian Cacao and Charlie Wheelock of um, Woodblock Chocolate hmm. in 2012. They came to Trinidad to do some training, um, some sensory training, and basically learning how to taste and understand what they could be looking for sourcing at origin, right? Because Charlie really wanted to source at origin. And Gino was going to be the, Gino's company was going to be the mechanism by which it legally entered the US, right? Um, so we met, I had already left the cocoa research uh, unit by that time, right? In terms of, I used to work there for about 13 years. And when we, when the three of us crossed paths, well, the rest is, is really literally history, um, but some amazing history because out of it came Gino's interest in sourcing large quantities from Trinidad, initially started with the Montserrat Cocoa Cooperative, the only truly functional um, farmers cooperative we have here in the country, and the San Juan Estate, okay, both located in probably the most famous cocoa growing region in Trinidad, at least historically, right? With the sourcing of large volumes from Trinidad, um, Gino one day said to me, you know, there maybe we need to look deeper. He wanted to redefine sourcing at origin, okay? And he wanted to use Trinidad as the, I guess, the testing ground for this because he had spent a year in Trinidad working with the American Chamber of Commerce and he had a particular love for Trinidad. So, okay, let's do this. So they asked, you know, they, the company asked me if I'd be willing to team up to do this work, given that I was already working with farmers on the post-harvest processing end to really improve processing practices so that quality could be improved, right? So I said, hell yes, let's do it. Because I finally saw an opportunity for us to make good on not just improving quality, you don't improve quality in a vacuum. If you're not prepared to provide a suitable market for farmers, game over. Game absolutely over, okay? So even though the project started off as a small one, still is a very small one, quite very much, you know, one bean drop in the bucket or maybe the entire container load of beans, it had tremendous effect we didn't know the impact that it was going to have when it started we still don't know the impact it's going to have going forward we just know what we wanted to be able to do to try and just see where it goes you know and I'm, I'm very very proud of this project because it gave us a chance to really bring I guess almost a microscope level look at what did Trinidad or what does Trinidad have to offer getting into nooks and crannies, tiny farms that nobody on the larger scale of things knew existed, would even bat an eyelid, you know, about. Definitely nobody on the international scale would know about it unless they themselves were coming here to source at that micro level, right? Sure. Um, but for most companies, it's just not financially feasible. It's, it's just not. Um, Meridian took it on as, a, as, a, as an internal, you know, I guess a small project, um, because we really wanted to see where this would go. And um, yeah, it's done some amazing things, man, in terms of really gotten the wider local public and now the international public 
to recognize that no producing country has a single flavor profile, not one. The mm. diversity that comes from your planting material, for starters, your growing location, the microclimate in that growing location, the microorganism diversity that is unique to that growing location, the producer know-how with respect to managing the crop so that you, you get healthy, nutrient-dense, very flavorful beans to start with, right? And then you begin to add the layers of magic with the primary processing, which then goes on to the chocolate maker side of things to add the other level of magic in terms of opening up those flavors that would have been created at origin, right? So the Trinidad Microlot project gave us an opportunity starting very small with, I think it was no more than six, six locations. Farmers took a very big chance on us. They didn't know who you know, Meridian was, but they knew who I was because I was always pestering people to spend time on their land and just really understand what was going on and just share the knowledge that I had gained in the time at the Cocoa Research Unit, yeah? So it, it created a really, really exciting partnership that continues to give us the opportunity to unpack so many layers, not just from the processing, flavor exploration, micro lots, you know, getting farmers known locally and internationally. It wasn't just about that. It turned out to be quite an interesting social, economic, and other uh, venture. Yes. And we're still, we're still very much learning as we go along, but I will tell you, it has unearthed some incredible gems in all of the locations that we have worked with and we continue to work with. But unfortunately, coming back to our first question, Harvest has been so bad that we've not been able to purchase anything for the last year. And mm. this year, there won't be anything for us to buy either, wow. which is heartbreaking on a lot of fronts for both the producers and the, you know, the, the, the clients who, who support our work. That is something that I, I recognize now that not single-handedly, because this is something that I cannot absolutely do alone, but it made me realize that we have to go deeper with the work that we're doing, this isn't just about working from the beans go up. We have to go straight back down to the soil, look at what is happening at the actual farm level regarding system health, how that is either off balance, slightly imbalanced, you know, or it's okay. And the plants are responding in a particular way to help us get production back up, even though we're going to have, and we are having, you know, the climatic variations once you build resilience into a system, or rather, you allow the system to develop its own resilience, we may be able to weather the, the, the virtual and, and, you know, the figurative and literal storm. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. Getting a Cicerone certification is an amazing way to raise your beer knowledge and can be a game changer for your beer career. But how are you supposed to find the time to prep and how are you supposed to know exactly what to study? Don't sweat because the Beer Scholar has you covered. Beer Scholar is a sponsor of Bean to Barstool, but I can tell you from personal experience years before I was doing this podcast how helpful the Beer Scholar study guides are. They offer efficient online courses for levels one and two that cover everything you need to know, tips and tricks for how to pass the exams, and include live weekly Zooms to taste and discuss classic beer styles together. They even have a new coaching program for the level three advanced Cicerone exam. 
I used the Beer Scholar Study Guide to pass my level two exam many years ago. I wish the level three had been around when I took that exam. I had to do it on my own. Wish their study guides had been available for that at the time. The vast majority of certified Cicerones in the world today have used Beer Scholar to help achieve the goal of passing that exam. If you are ready to take your beer career to the next level, visit thebeerscholar.com and check out their online courses. We'll hear more from Sarah in just a little bit, but first, let's hear from the brewer who introduced us. 4,000 miles away from tropical Trinidad in still-frozen Alberta, it's 2 degrees Fahrenheit there as I record this, Chris is on what Sarah called the transformation end of the cacao chain, using cacao in both beer and chocolate. The beer is a logical choice, but how did he start making chocolate? As you'll hear Chris explain, a little COVID lockdown boredom and a lot of curiosity has led to a new and popular seasonal tradition. So Chris, you have brewed a beer and made a chocolate bar with the same cacao, and I was immediately excited when I heard about that. Tell me about where this whole idea came from and how you got started working with this particular cacao. The first was originally kind of my interest in wanting to actually you know, learn how to make chocolate properly. I mean, this would have happened over the period of COVID because, you know, as everybody seemed to be picking up some sort of COVID hobby, some reason everybody went to, to sourdough and I, I had this inkling of trying to figure out how to make chocolate. And so I kind of took the dive down the rabbit hole to to figure out the whole process uh, and ended up going all the way to figuring out how to make it right from uh, the, the cocoa bean. Started off with just, just starting with basically uh, cocoa mass. Like I, I eventually invested in uh, one of those premier chocolate refiners just to be able to do six pound chocolate at a time, moved to playing with nibs and then got everything I needed to do the milling. I would just use my own oven for roasting the cocoa and I milled it using some of the instructions through Chocolate Alchemist to design and build my own little winnowing system there i wanted to actually try it again but at scale my first inkling was let's figure out how to a you know like brew a really really good porter secondary to that was figuring out the the best methodologies and trying to incorporate the cocoa into the beer so in the early stages of putting that recipe together it, it was really just doing a lot of research I talked to a lot of people, even in the restaurant, and they thought the idea of doing something 8% would be kind of cool. And at that time, I didn't quite know exactly how I wanted to integrate the cocoa. I knew I had time because we were going to be in the tank for like four weeks or five weeks. But the, the initial thought was using that the Chalaka liquid cocoa just because it was stupid simple to, to work with. But what I found is uh, I, I took a sample of the beer off the fermenter and just threw like a little tiny bit uh, of the, the liquid cocoa in. And I just wasn't pleased. Uh, I wasn't pleased with uh, the outcome. And, and the only reason uh, I, I say that is not, nothing to, to not Shalaka because I, I had a very, very particular thing that I was looking for. And I tried this chocolate porter, I think it was Tampa Brewing Company, and it was mind-blowing. Like it was absolutely delicious. Like it, you could really get the chocolate in there. It didn't have any bitterness. Like whatever they did really worked. So I really wanted to to try and kind of look at that specific beer as kind of okay. I have to, 
I have to try and, you know, get the flavor to as good as I can remember. And when I had used the the chalaca and it didn't get me anywhere near those results, and I was only like a, a week or two away from trying to, you know, fi- figure out what, what to do and package, that, that's when I kind of worked with what I could get for cocoa. Because even when I was making chocolate, like I, I'd go through Meridian Cocoa, I bought like a whole bunch of cocoa beans from Trinidad and Tobago, just to try, you know, try some of these other other beans, see what kind of flavors you can get out of it. And I was actually quite astounded, and the variety of, of flavors you can get. Like uh, I had some from, you know, Ramnath Estates and and La Reunion Estate, and it's like one or two other estates that I just picked up a kilo here, a kilo there, a couple of kilos, here, whatever, whatever I could get. Not realizing that apparently it's quite difficult to to get your hands on beans from Trinidad and Tobago. But the big reason I was kind of looking at Trinidad and Tobago is my my grandmother's is Trinidadian. Uh, on my dad's side of the family and i wanted to try and you know play play to that a little bit kind of play pay homage to you know a part of part of my family a part of myself but it was an opportunity for me to try try and create something kind of cool and interesting that i could tell a story with which unfortunately when i brewed the beer in 2021 i wasn't able to do that just because the the time corruption availability so i was working with the the venezuelan cocoa beans and managed to come up with a method to incorporate cocoa into the beer in a manner that you could still get a lot of that flavor without extracting much of what i guess i would consider the off flavors that, that i wasn't usually too impressed with but the other issue would have been getting the flavor without extracting much of the fat content still kind of maintain good head retention on the beer too so i would actually do a cold infusion on it and basically do some almost kind of like a like a hop rocket but maybe not not exactly like a like a hop mm-hmm. rocket because i i would have like a, a 50 liter keg essentially that i would put a paint strainer inside and then fill it fill the paint strainer full of milled cocoa and then throw a fitting on top that allowed me to you know have a hose going through the top i would just pump beer from the bottom of the tank into the cocoa it would filter through through the cocoa and come out the bottom up the cip uh, on the fermenter and then i would just keep the whole fermenter cycling like that for four or five hours until i extract the flavor from the cocoa and it's quite cool when when you do that too because you can taste the the beer as as it goes and how the flavor just evolves is a beer that went over so well that it was the first time i had actually brewed a seasonal beer twice in a row and so this time was actually kind of cool now i knew how i wanted to integrate the cocoa i had a bit of time to to figure it out a bit of time to source the the challenge was by the time i wanted to buy the cocoa from meridian uh they didn't have enough stock on their website so i had reached out uh directly to them and told them what i was doing it's like hey i'm trying to make this this beer and i wanted to work with trinidadian bean and you know because you know family trinidad and tobago and, and so they, they told me there, there's a couple options is, is one they've got some stuff coming in and they could ship that or they've got this uh this other micro lot that they get in specifically for one particular commercial producer it's like well that sounds kind of interesting so they actually let me buy a whole sack like a full 30 kilo sack from jagasar estates and apparently from uh, i think looking at the batch number it looked like it was one of three bags from 2021 wow. that uh that they had harvested so de- definitely mad respects to <laughs> being able to 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 get get my hands on that and even that was such a unique chocolate too because i, I made it as a as an 80 percent 
dark chocolate and the flavor profile was if i was to give it to anybody they probably wouldn't think that it's chocolate because <laughs> it, it just had like it, it was like stone fruit with a hint of chocolate essentially like wow. it was such a fruity profile to it and i played around with a few different roast combinations and you know different temperature and time combinations it was all oven roasting i don't have a drum roast or anything and so i was trying to find what works well for it and in the end i actually used a blend of the three different roasts that i had done once i kind of nailed down a roast that kind of got me somewhere where it wasn't too burnt or, or or too nutty and actually accentuated more of the the fruitiness i went with that for kind of the remainder of the beans because i had some with the other roasts to it i figured it blend it to a certain ratio and produce it that way. And I would refine it for about 48 hours and then, uh, and then temper and mold. Uh, I kept five kilos of beans uh, set aside just for infusing the beer and people loved it. Did that uh, we, same we, flavor come through in the beer that you're describing in the chocolate? Uh, slightly different. Like the, I didn't expect the same because I, I used a slightly different ratio because uh, I wanted to have more of the fruitier roast come through in the, the bars themselves but uh, the stuff that was a little darker roast so i was figuring would probably actually work a little bit better in the beer and so while you you do get a hint of that fruitiness it's not it's not to the same as what, what you get in the chocolate bar, but it's, it is it is definitely a notable cocoa character uh, in there. And even when doing the infusion on it, it, it actually transformed the flavor of the beer quite a bit. Yeah, every every time I sit at the bar right now, if it's if it's not my chocolate border, it's my IPA that I'm <laughs> enjoying, enjoying a pint of before going home. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the beer itself. You mentioned before you're going to infuse it with chocolate, you got first have to develop a really good porter. You landed on something like a Baltic porter. When you were building that recipe, were you making accommodations knowing that you were going to be adding chocolate or did you intend this to be a standalone Baltic porter and then you were just going to add chocolate to see how that changed it? We'll be right back. Hey everyone, Final Gravity Issue 4 is now available in the Bean to Barstool shop. This fourth issue of our zine telling intimate, human-centered stories from the world of beer is full of great articles, including Kate Power of Lady Justice Brewing talking about why she might be done with beer festivals, Ukrainian beer writer Lana Svitinkova writing about the Zeugel brewing tradition in Germany, UK writer Matthew Curtis talking about the blend of old and new in the Cascale tradition in Manchester, and many more. We believe passionately in this project, and if you believe the story of beer is ultimately a story about people and relationships, we think you'll love Final Gravity as well. You can order the new issue from our shop on beantobarstool.com, or you can also subscribe, including subscribing for your brewery tap room or break room, or you can subscribe and sign up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash beantobarstoolzines. Now, back to the episode. So absolutely, I did want to make some accommodations for the fact that I, I did add chocolate and, and probably the biggest accommodation was more just managing how much crystal malt I ended up using in the beer. Like, you know, first and foremost, is you know, like a lot of your pours will probably use a combination of, of brown malts and amber malts. And, and I found like the, the Thomas Fawcett brown malt already has like a really, really nice cocoa character to it. And then outside of that, I tried to work with, you know, a lot with, uh, with some local monsters. We got uh, origin malting 
uh, out in Strathmore that I, that I picked up some amber malts as well. Of course, our, our big supply is Canada malting for, for most everything else, because I know, okay, chocolate may typically be somewhat bitter is that I've got to kind of work with some, some crystal malts, build a little complexity in there as well. And, and when working with crystal malts, I, I like to kind of blend different types of crystal malts, like try to use specialty almost anywhere I can, because it's just such a delicious raisiny, <laughs> yeah. sweet, uh, sweet, dark crystal malt. And so I'll use that. I'll use a little bit of a Karaminic type three, because I love that, that kind of caramel malty sweetness that, that you get out of that. And then. I think I just used like maybe a, a little bit of crystal 40 from great Western in there as well. Like it just, a, just kind of that good, good balance. So you're not overpowering too much on, on either end of that flavor spectrum. You still want to get some of some of the complexities from the darker while bringing, uh, bringing a little of the caramel notes in on the, the middle while still having a little of that sweetness on the bottom end. I didn't know really how bitter the flavor of the cocoa was going to be but mm-hmm. you know when the, the idea is you want your beer to almost taste like you're you're drinking a chocolate bar you kind of have to have a little bit of sweetness to to go in there sure. so that that was kind of the, the driving concept for developing the base of the recipe so then switching over to the bar you said you just kind of developed this at home because it was something you wanted to learn about much like other people were taking up sourdough bread what surprised you about the process of making chocolate? So initially it actually started when I wanted to figure out how to make cannabis edibles. <laughs> but uh, but uh, the the surprising part was actually realizing that things don't dissolve. Everything is a suspension. Mm-hmm. And, and so even when dealing with the initial recipes that I came across, it was always about using icing sugar and, and, and cocoa powder you know, whatever other additional cocoa butter you can throw in there. And so that that's kind of how it got started in, in the basis. But I, I learned really, really quickly how important tempering chocolate, even when I get involved in, in some of the, like the, you know, bean to bar chocolate making groups on Facebook, you know, I almost find anytime somebody has a problem, you know, they show off, you know, fat blue and other issues with their, their mm-hmm. chocolate. Why is it doing this? Uh, did you depper a problem? Like that's almost <laughs> always the, yeah. the, the reason. And unfortunately, it's also one of the most trickiest parts to, to get right. Uh, I'd even invested in a commercial grade tempering machine. I wasn't satisfied with using the whole double boiler method mm-hmm. with just a couple metal yeah i would get okay results but like you can be all over the place doing that i got i got a chocolate vision tempering machine and, and that's been working pretty well for the the volumes that i needed but even even having that temper control it can still still be tricky if you don't know what you're doing and you still have to kind of have an eye for what the chocolate is doing most of the stuff was all about, oh yeah, you need some seed chocolate, which makes absolute sense. But what if I don't have any seed chocolate with the cocoa bean that I'm trying to make? Bars with like I don't want to contaminate this this cocoa with cocoa from some other other bean. So yeah. you have to know how to kind of do almost like that traditional like marble slab method, but without a marble slab. Essentially, <laughs> I, I would I would cheat it by you know, taking one of those stainless steel scrapers and throwing it in my freezer and then take a spatula, throw some cocoa on your, your chocolate on that and then s- scrape it off to try and get as, get as much flash formed crystals into, into solution as I can. And then as I'm watching the, the, the temperatures drop and you can start to actually see the, the texture 
changing. It takes some time. You got to do that spoon test. <laughs> you got to you got to make sure you get that nice flat matte finish on the spoon. Any little blemishes, guess what? You're probably going to make a whole bunch of chocolate bars and end up sending it all back into the tampering machine <laughs> again when, once you start seeing fat bloom in an hour. Of course, you've had the chance to taste these together. What was it like getting to taste the beer and the chocolate with the same origin in it side by side? It's a really cool experience. And probably the fun part about it was uh, normally around the winter time is when we have the Banff Craft Beer Festival. And so when we brought it out uh, for the 2021 Banff Craft Beer Festival, uh, I brought a whole bunch of the, the chocolate with me. And, and what I would do with uh, with most of the people that were coming up to our booths, I would you know go through the lineup, I would pitch the beers and stuff. But then I get to the porter and it's Tell me, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going. I'm not going to pitch this as a beer. I'm going to pitch this to you as an experience. And what I need you to do is, I'm going to give you a sample of this beer. I'm going to give you a piece of this chocolate. What you're going to do is you're going to try the beer. Then you're going to take a bite of the chocolate. Let it coat your palate. Enjoy the chocolate for what it is, and then try the beer again. And almost invariably, you know, after they try the beer the second time, like they, they try it, you know, it's like, oh yeah, it's good beer. They try the chocolate. It's like, that's actually really good chocolate. And they try the beer again. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> was, and so this last year, I kind of did the same exercise, but I told them, don't eat the full chocolate. Just take a bite of it, try the beer again. So you can understand how the chocolate transforms the beer. But then I want you to understand how that now transforms the chocolate after you've done that like it, it's it's a really cool experience I, I like doing that for for myself for for the beers but it was just really cool to watch all of these people at this festival just be able to experience this because you don't you don't really see too many people doing something like that like the whole chocolate and beer pairing let alone taking a chocolate where you use those beans that went to make that chocolate to infuse this beer and it was all hand done it was all made in house and stuff like that it makes for a really cool story and a very unique experience for for these people that you're trying to to show what it can do so with you using the trinidad and tobago cacao and you mentioned that you have ancestry there as well have you had the chance to visit the islands I've been there a number of times. My dad's actually down there right now because he built a house out in Tobago. The last time I've gone down there was probably in 2017. Uh, I don't get to tear myself away from the brewery too often. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, going down to Trinidad and Tobago even as a as a kid, and we would visit a lot of extended family down there. And a lot of my favorite times actually is when we'd be down there and we'd have my great uncle Michael showing up because he was always a he was always a character. Uh, he unfortunately passed away not long after my, my sister got married. Apparently, it was like, you know, made newspapers down there, hmm. you know, because he, he was uh, involved in the presentation college down in San Fernando. Yeah, he was he was a character. He was always a fun guy to chat with, always singing, had his ukulele with him. And I think I learned a little bit of cricket from him as well. <laughs> well, the next time you go down, do you plan to check out some of the cacao growing regions? Well, without question, you know, like I, I tried to make an effort to to reach out to the Jagasars. Uh, I'd still love to actually visit that estate and even some of the other estates. I know the Department of Agriculture in, in Trinidad and Tobago takes uh, takes their uh, cocoa producing quite seriously in the country. I think they've recognized that they they've certainly got a hidden gem down there for sure. And mm-hmm. with with some of the chalk, the, the cocoa that I've got out of Trinidad and Tobago, that doesn't surprise me. It's it's some of the most 
most expensive cocoa you can get from Meridian. And it's very unique, very fruity. Uh, every estate has something different going on. And it's absolutely delicious stuff. And I would love nothing more than to meet the people that are producing it. What's next for you with working with Cacao? I mean, you mentioned that you bought some commercial grade chocolate equipment. Do you want to start making more chocolate? Do you want to use more of this on the brewing side? We definitely want to make this beer an annual thing for sure. Now that it's the second time that we've done it, like we we produced, I think, 150 flats and sold out most of them within the first two weeks. But even on top of that, I took off 18 50 liter kegs just for our nitro tap. And we've already burned through most of it and it's much faster than we did last year. So I think the plan is we're going to continue doing the uh, the chocolate bar and, and uh, chocolate porter combination for, for winters for the foreseeable future. Uh, as far as myself for chocolate, we'll see. I, I know I've got a few opportunities that I'm trying to look into, anything from you know, finding ways to you know help my daughter learn how to get to just business, you know, learn the basics of uh, operating a business, buying, selling, just let's figure out how to make a fantastic product first and, and figure out how to, how to sell it if she wants wants to take that up great if if not at least i got some cool chocolate making equipment that i can you know do, do, do some cool stuff at home with been exploring various uh opportunities and uh, and being able to work and you know whether it's like you know cannabis or psychedelics or you know stuff like that so just because of the refining process for for bean to bar just go goes that extra step further for making something compelling and interesting on that side of things too, but yeah, it's just like I, I like experimenting with a with a few different things. I'd like to try out uh, a chocolate where I just use a crystal malt in there instead of sugar, and just try and do like a malt chocolate. Wow. I think that'd be kind of interesting. Yeah, that it, would be. I'd just, love to uh, taste that if you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So second, I might take some of that Caramunic three that I end up using in a bunch of my beers and bring that up into the refiner with some cocoa and see what uh, what comes of it. Well, beyond just making a good beer and good chocolate, what does it mean to you to be able to make both of these with this cacao that, you know, is somewhat tied to your own background? What kind of story are you telling with that? And what does that mean to you? Well, for me, it's, it's hopefully trying to kind of give people a taste of our, I guess, our heritage. You know, we, we are a family owned and operated business and we take that side of things quite serious. The bar was built by myself, Kyle and Chase. So I guess when uh, when it comes to the the business itself, we we did do a lot of effort as a family in really building this place from the ground up. It, it's kind of neat to be able to you know, showcase this this chocolate bar, or this beer that that kind of tells a bit of a story about us in a way. Because even when I when I first tasted the chocolate, it's like it wasn't that it was just a cool, unique chocolate. It, it almost tasted nostalgic because there's there's some flavor profiles that very much reminded me of some of the smells and stuff that I, I would normally get whenever we would visit uh, Trinidad and Tobago. And, and that's one of the things that actually kind of surprised me the most uh, with it. Tell the story of being able to make the beer and the chocolate. And so I'm hoping that we can kind of take it even further the next time around. As, as I, I do really want to visit uh, the estates where we get the beans from. I've I've done that a lot with the maltsters. I've toured the the Canada malting facilities. I've uh, I've hung out at the Hilton Farms outside of Strathmore, where they showed me their seeding process, and hung out with animals up at Redshift Malting outside of Penhurst. 
and got to drive the combine for three hours <laughs> while, while harvesting some of the barley that's good, that's being used in, in our beer. So I, I really, really like kind of getting close and personal with a lot of our, our suppliers and, you know, especially since we've got kind of that, that family tie uh, to the country of Trinidad and Tobago is, is I, I'm really hoping to be able to make the opportunity this year or next year, but hopefully sometime soon to be able to go and actually visit some of these estates in Trinidad and Tobago. Now let's return to Trinidad to hear Sarah talk about the specific cacao Chris used in his beer and chocolate and the passionate farmer who made it possible. So we got connected because of a beer and chocolate being made at Half Hitch Brewing in Canada, yes. working with some cacao <laughs> from down there. Tell me a little bit about that specific cacao and the farm that it came from. Right. So the beautiful, yet to be tasted chocolate stout, hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let him know. <laughs> came. <laughs> yes, please do. Yeah, it came from the Jagasar Estate. Uh, located in Maruga. Okay. Now for those, uh, for those who may be listening and who may want to locate it on a map instantly, it's spelled M-O-R-U-G-A. Okay. Maruga. And this is in the South of Trinidad. Um, very, very beautiful location. Very, very beautiful location with lots of cocoa history that pretty much has remained unknown to even the local public for far too long. Okay, Maruga is now really coming into its own with a lot of things in the agricultural and cultural space. Okay, but that notwithstanding, the Jagasai estate in Maruga, it's if I remember correctly, it's approximately 16 acres of cacao actually intercropped with some fruit trees and i can't remember if he has any lumber trees on the land some farmers don't really like to have timber type trees in the space for a number of reasons uh, maybe harvestable maybe saleable but the destruction to the cacao trees when they have to be felled it's a whole other story okay mm -hmm. but that cacao estate the one thing i really remember about it is how much Mr. Jagasar really loves spending time with his trees. Yes. Mm -hmm. The estate is a mix of what we know as TSH varietals, the Trinidad selected hybrids. Okay. These are hybrids that over many, many years, they've been developed for commercial sale to farmers. Um, the Ministry of Agriculture is responsible for that breeding program that's been going on for more than 60 plus years, producing some of the most incredible hybrids, I think, the international community has ever seen. They bred for, you know, bean size, butterfat content, uh, disease tolerance, okay, productivity for sure, because at the end of the day, most of our farmers would be selling either wet weight or dried weight. And it, it would be, of course, of tremendous interest to have beans that are fewer beans that are heavier. So it's less work sure. for, you know, more weight kind of thing. Interestingly enough, much of our material, even though in the early stages it was not exactly bred with flavor in mind, I guess the Theo gods <laughs> smiled on us in a number of ways um, because the flavor coming from these hybrids is it's truly exceptional, truly, truly exceptional. And what's pretty fascinating, as I mentioned before, even though most of the country has the same varietals roughly planted, granted, maybe in different ratios, they're under different growing conditions and they would be handled differently. So the expression of flavor is different. Unless, for example, you have a particular varietal that is known to be very, very floral from start to finish. Okay. No matter where you grow it, the floral note is intense. It's crazy. 
Okay, this is TSH-919. Anyway, so Mr. Mr. Jagasar had, and I say had because unfortunately Mr. Jagasar is no longer with us. He passed on last year, uh, much to everybody's distress, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad to know that he's, he's no longer in pain. The farmers are, they, they endure too much as it is when, you know, when, when they're alive. So God rest his soul. You know, he did, he did what he could. He loved his trees. He, I remember him telling me, you know, his trees are like his children. And he would love to, you know, when he wasn't working, he would still go to the field to just spend time around the trees, walking through, just really paying attention. But this is what good farmers do, right? And they talk to their trees. He had no problems in telling me he spoke to his trees. He was not judged. I do the same. <laughs> so <laughs> it's important. There's a lot of interesting energy exchange that takes place in this space that, that weighs in to a lot of unseen quality parameters, Okay. But that's just my take on things. But Mr. Jagasar had had, he grew up working with cacao. And when you eventually speak with Vijay, his son, who has been very instrumental in, in at least when Mr. Jagasar was alive, in really helping to improve a number of things with respect to the processing uh, facility located at his home, Mr. Jagasar's home, to make things a lot easier for his dad to manage with the, the crop, Okay. Um, but his dad was very, very, very feisty, very determined, very, very determined man. So even, you know, even when his energy levels were quite low, he was always determined to ferment his beans himself. Mm. And when we met, I really, you know, your request for this interview made me realize that I have no memory exactly of when we first met, what brought us together. I think someone from the U.S. had reached out and said, you know, you guys need to buy from this location and we're like, huh? okay, who's this? <laughs> and then I started doing some homework, you know, and, and, and got the contact. But long story short, Mr. Jagasa and I met and we hit it off immediately because he was always the kind of person who was willing to learn. Very much one of those farmers, even though he had been, he had been schooled in so much of cacao, working with cacao and processing cacao from his childhood, he was very much willing to learn. And I love learning from him as well, because the traditional knowledge, there's so much that still needs to be unpacked by science to understand how in God's name did they get such amazing quality when they didn't quote unquote understand or know the science associated with all of these microorganisms in that zoo that is fermentation, right? It's called paying attention. <laughs> it's called paying attention. And we, 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 had, we had a really good time, you know, looking at and analyzing his ferments, having him, you know, just giving him the validation from my point of view, bringing the science to the space, why certain things were working, why certain things were not working, having him understand why as a buyer, I would need to reject certain things and not others, what he could do to improve that because with the work that, uh, that we do, Meridian is determined to buy everything we can from the farmers, okay? There's nothing more heartbreaking than having a batch run for two weeks, then probably dry for three weeks or a month if the weather is cooperating. And then at the end of it, you, from a flavor perspective, you have to tell the farmer, this does not make my specs. So this is one of the, I think it's one of the most powerful things about um, Meridian's involvement. It's that of the technical support from start to finish. This is so crucial. It's one of the things that I, it made me realize we have got to do uh, on a wider scale in the industry. It does not mean that we as the service providers need to be there all the time. That's not the plan. I don't believe in the umbilical cord uh, approaches, right? Mm -hmm. 
we help refine the skills that are already there and then we step back and we let them work their own magic with it because now they own it yes so with Mr. with Mr. Jagasar, I, I really always had the pleasure of going through all of these sensory physical indicators in the space with the fermentation, with the drying. And for me, the greatest achievement on my end was bringing his chocolate that I made because I use chocolate as I have to analyze the chocolate, right? As mm -hmm. part of Meridian's QC hair in Trinidad, I have to evaluate the beans not only as a physical level, but also at the liquor and chocolate level to know what profiles we're getting. Do we have an imbalance with astringency, um, bitterness, et cetera, et cetera? Do we need to reject this batch, but based on what? Or we're accepting this based on what? Yes, and it's it's very, very transparent with the farmers, okay? So Mr. Jagasaw really appreciated that level of feedback because it gave him the, the, the thumbs up that, my God, I'm really doing a good job. And of course you're doing a good job, but now the rest of the world is going to know it, right? <laughs> so when I had him taste his very first block, because we I, I don't do um, tablets or anything. I don't need to do fancy stuff. It's just this huge hunk. It looks like a gold brick. <laughs> yeah. It's basically one kg of chocolate that goes back to the farmers, right? And the first time we sat and we just, we didn't just taste, we ate. <laughs> we ate chocolate. The The pride was tangible. It was... I think that was the best gift I, I personally could have ever given to him, you know, with Meridian's help. And every every batch after that, as we would with all farmers, whenever, whenever I would assess material, all of the chocolate would go back to them with feedback on how that particular batch performed. So that even though he might have been frustrated with me on certain, you know, in certain circumstances where the weather was not that great, someone you know missed turning at the right time something was compromised he had to be told that listen he like all the other farmers in in, in the program this is why we can't accept this but we would always try to find another buyer for him but the good thing is that with that kind of ongoing feedback it meant more and more he made sure the checks and balances were in place to ensure that we would get top quality and one of the things i will always remember him saying to me sarah I did exactly what you said. Okay. Now that could be a double-edged sword. <laughs> yeah, that could be a double-edged sword because he can do exactly what I said, but if the conditions, if something in the system moved and he wasn't yet aware of the impact that could have following my instructions may not have been the best thing. Right. And it's, it's a learning, it's a learning phase uh, for all of us. Right. But fortunately with Mr. Jagasar, we really, really had some exceptional batches come through. All of the batches that we we purchased um, from him went forward to, to basically make chocolate makers and, and, and the consumers very, very happy. I'm sorry that he's no longer with us. I'm really looking forward to, you know, what the, the plan is going forward. And like I said, VJ may be able to better weigh in on that because we would love to see his dream be taken forward because we know what those beans can do. We know what that is state can do, but... The reality of the situation is all of this requires human intervention, commitment, and a longer-term business plan. Yeah. It's fascinating to me to hear these two people so far away from each other connected through the flavors of something as small as cacao beans. I love getting to see the entire long, winding road from the soil of a cacao grove on Trinidad, the farmer's care and attention, the growing trees, Sarah's expertise, 
The rigorous harvest and fermentation and drying process, quality testing, shipping, and roasting, through to a simple pint of beer and a chocolate bar. It's so easy to take the delicious beer and chocolate we enjoy for granted, but it all has a story. A long story that includes researchers, farmers, laborers, brokers, brewers, and makers, and ultimately, us. As soon as we taste a beer or chocolate, we're part of that story. We're the lucky ones who get to taste the final sentence written by all those hands. We're part of something beautiful. Let's pay attention to it. You can find out more about Half Hitch Brewing and Meridian Cacao in the show notes. Thanks to Chris and Sarah for coming on the show today, and to all of you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bean to Barstool.